Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, it's the last chapter of Luke. It's the last chapter of Luke, and we're going to look at the last verses in the chapter. Luke 24, so since Easter, where we talk about the resurrection of Christ, there's another chapter in the Bible, after the resurrection, where Jesus interacts with people. So our faith is grounded on his death and resurrection, but then we say, what do we do with that? What's, what's Christianity look like after the resurrection? What are people supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? What's the impact? So this last chapter tells us, what Jesus expects from his disciples after he's risen. And so it applies to us, since we, live, we also live after the resurrection. So Luke chapter 24, verse 36, we're going to read from 36 down to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> this isn't quite chronological. There's a gap of about 40 days uh, between when he spoke to him here and when he has actually ascends. But when they write the book of, when these authors write their books, they're trying to make a point. They're not giving a strict chronology. It's not a biography. And so it's all true, but they leave some stuff out that doesn't apply to their message. So if you go over to other chapters, you're going to see that he was there for 40 days. But in this book, they skip that part and just go right to the end. So last week we talked about these. it's Sunday, the day of the resurrection. The two disciples were walking down the road. Jesus appears to them, but he, they don't know who he is. He reveals himself to them as Jesus. They run back to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up the story. They're telling, we saw Jesus. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, you, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And there's about a 40-day period that they skips over. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. Amen. What is a disciple? Some of us may not actually think about it. What is a disciple? So it says here, his disciples. And we talk about making disciples. And Jesus' last words in another book where he, that's recorded, it says, go and make disciples. 
Well, what is a disciple? Basically, a disciple is someone who follows somebody. They pattern their life after them. They walk behind them. So you can imagine Jesus as he walks around Israel teaching and preaching. Imagine his 12 disciples walk right behind him. Jesus went to a place to eat. They went there. He sat at the table. They sat at the table. He got up to leave. They got up to leave. He helped the poor. They were next to him doing what he did. That's what it means to be a disciple. So we are called to be disciples of Jesus. It's a little bit more difficult, though, isn't it? Because Jesus is not here. We don't see where he's going to eat or what he's doing. And that's what this passage is for. It's to teach us how to follow Christ, how to walk behind Christ when Christ is not physically present with us. So how does the resurrection affect our lives? How does it change us? How do we become disciples? So in this passage, we're going to see three things that Jesus teaches about being a disciple. Number one, you have to have a personal contact with Jesus. You as a person, Jesus as a person, personal contact. It's not abstract, it's personal. Secondly, you have to see Christ in Scripture. And thirdly, you have to accept the mission that Jesus gives to his disciples. Do these three things, you're a disciple. Miss one of them, you're not a disciple. So let's look at it closely. Number one, Jesus makes personal visits. What's Jesus' purpose in this passage? He shows up, they're hiding in this room, because that same day, Jesus had been executed. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, so if you're the government, and you see a leader who's a rebel, you kill him. But what else do you do? You make sure you get the other guys. you got to get his leaders. If you just kill the top leader, then the next guy is going to step up. So you've got to kill all the, the sort of the leadership in the group. So they're like, well, they killed Jesus, and they saw us walking with him, so let's hide in this room. So they're hiding. And these two disciples come back and say, hey, we saw Jesus. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the room, Jesus appears. Now, they're not very good disciples. So their reaction, even though they just heard that he was alive, their reaction is terror. Imagine they're sitting around the table, listening, and Jesus appears, and they jump up, tables are flying, they're jumping over the chairs. You ever seen somebody like who's afraid of snakes when a snake appears? Their reaction? It's, it's irrational. They're just trampling over people to get out of the way. That's kind of what's happening. They're terrified and frightened because Jesus is there. They think they've seen a ghost. They believed in ghosts, and they thought he was one. And Jesus says, goes through quite a little process here to prove that he is real. So what's he do? He says, why are you troubled? What's wrong? It's a little ironic. He shows up out of the middle of nowhere. He's like, what's wrong? Why is everybody scared? It's me. What's the big deal? Did something happen? Remember, he's talking to the disciples. He's like, what happened? Did someone die? They're like, yeah, didn't you hear? So that's what he does here. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Then he says, behold my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh. Then he shows him his hands and feet. Now, what was significant about his hands and feet? They had nails driven through them. They were pierced. There were huge scars. And he says, see, this isn't a ghost. This is a real person. He says, grab him. Put your, put your finger on the scar. It was important 
that they understood that Jesus was physically there with them. Not an idea, not a spirit, not a philosophy, not a path, a physical flesh and bones. He literally says flesh and bones. That's actually, I think that's where we get the term from, flesh and bones. Right here, he says, spirits do not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Why is this so important? To be, for them to be disciples, there had to be a person to follow. And if the person was dead, how do you follow them? You just die and stay in the grave with them, right? That's what it means to follow somebody. You just die and stay there. So he needed to be risen and real. They still don't believe. Now they're, too, they're so happy they can't believe it's, it's too good to be true. And he goes, okay, do you have any food? You ever seen a ghost movie and the ghost drinks or eats something? What happens? They're like, Phew. You, like, see it go down and, like, come out the other end and just goes right through them. There's nothing there. There's nothing there to hold the food. So he says, give me some food. Have you any food here? Is that the most normal thing you could imagine someone saying? You got anything to eat? You ever go to someone's house that you're good friends with? You're like, hey, you got anything to eat? That's what Jesus says here. Why? Because he's a human. He's a normal human. He just says, I'm hungry. So they say, broiled fish and honeycomb. And what's he do? He takes it. He eats it. Why? Because he's a human. He's flesh and blood. And people eat. He wasn't some magical creature. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't sort of the spiritual presence. He was the man, Christ Jesus. If he was not real, if he could not eat a piece of fish, they couldn't follow him. We know that because he made a point to say this. So Jesus is telling us, in order to follow him, he needs to be real. Physically dead, physically risen. So that you could give him a punch in the arm if you dared. You could have a meal with him. Sometimes Christianity comes, it seems to come across as metaphor. You need to, to dine with Jesus in sort of a metaphorical way. No, they literally did it. Christianity is real because Christ is real. Amen. Amen. We have to be the same kind of disciples. They needed Jesus to meet with them personally. Were they followers of him before this? No, they were hiding in a room. They'd abandoned Jesus. They'd left him behind. For them to follow him, he had to show up and make a personal visit. And then what happens? Then they follow him. Nothing's changed. If Jesus does not personally visit you, you're not a follower. You're not a disciple. You see, there has to be a real relationship between not you and the church, not you and Christians, but between you and this person right here who ate a piece of fish. You need to know Jesus personally, like they did. I think because we live by sight, we make Jesus into sort of a metaphorical or spiritual or abstract concept. How do people talk about God? Man up in the sky. Big guy upstairs. Space dad. Right? Like, it's just sort of this abstract, up there, out there. What's Jesus say? Nope. I'm real. And if you haven't had that personal contact, you don't know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you can't follow Jesus. But I think we all see the apparent problem. Where is he? He's not appearing to us in the middle of the room. 
how do we have a personal contact with Jesus if he's not here, if he's in heaven? Where's the personal contact come from? There has to be some real connection between us and the person Jesus Christ, and that comes from the Holy Spirit. He says this at the end, verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you. Promise is the Spirit. They didn't need the Spirit right then, did they? They had Jesus in the flesh. But then Jesus ascended, we need the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the real person of God who connects us with the real person of Jesus, individually. That's what Ephesians says. For this reason, Paul's praying, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, in other words, Christians, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, you see the, the concrete language? rooted and grounded, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ. How do you know somebody loves you? Don't you have to know them? If I told you that someone in Kansas loves you, you'd be like, no, they don't. I don't know them. To know the love of Christ, which means you need to know Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How? with the might through his spirit in the inner man. So this is why Christianity is about faith. You don't need faith when Jesus shows up. You need faith right now. Is Jesus real? You can't see him. You have to believe what the Bible teaches, that we have a personal relationship with Jesus through the spirit, and that that's as real as anything you can see with your eyes. Without that, you can't follow Jesus any more than they could follow Jesus without seeing him. Then what's Jesus do? It's interesting, he doesn't just show up and say, I'm real, and then leave, which would have been enough for them. They would have been fine. They, were decided, they knew Jesus was alive. They knew he was real. They knew what to do. They walked with him. But Jesus continues on, as much for their sake as for ours, and he explains the scriptures. Now, I mean that in a double way. He explains it to them, but he also gives us the explanation. Why scripture? Jesus. He's the reason for scripture. So what does he say? These are the words which I spoke to you, which I, when I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. In other words, the whole Old Testament. When he says law of Moses, prophets, Psalms, he's, he's just saying everything. Nothing's left out. It's all concerning me. You can't follow Christ if you don't know who he is. And you don't know who he is unless you read the Bible. And what he's saying is, when you read the Bible to follow Christ, you have to see Jesus there. When you read the Old Testament, it doesn't talk about Jesus, does it? Not in person. But is he there? How do we know he's there? It has to be explained to us. It's, there's a opening, an eye-opening experience we have to have, which means that when you go to follow Jesus, you need to look for Jesus. Isn't that just a basic understanding of following him? You got to look for him. So when you go to the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, it's about me, look for me. Here's what Luther says. Luther wrote 500 years ago, 
He said, know then that the Old Testament is a book of laws. How do we understand the Old Testament? It's a book of laws, which teaches what men are to do and not to do, and gives them besides examples and stories of how these laws are kept or broken. How do you sum up the Old Testament? That's it. Book of laws and stories about how people kept them or broke them. Specifically, the books of Moses. What then of the other books, the prophets and the histories? Remember, Jesus says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. They're nothing else than what Moses is, for all of them do the work that Moses does and guards against the false prophets that may not lead the people to works, but allow them to stay in the work of Moses and the knowledge of sin. Moses says, here's the law. Every other book in the Old Testament says, here's what it means. Go back to Moses. They hold fast to this purpose in order to keep the people conscious of their own impotence through a right understanding of the law and thus drive them to Christ. Thus the prophets are nothing else than administrators and witnesses of Moses to bring everyone to Christ through the law. If then you would interpret well and surely set Christ before you, for he is the man to whom it all applies. You want to understand the Old Testament? Figure out how it connects to Christ. That's what Jesus says. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. We're not Jews. Jews follow the Old Testament. We follow Christ. You see the difference? Jews believe the Old Testament like we believe it. That is true and that is from God. But we follow Christ. So when we go to the Old Testament, we look for Christ. And if you don't look for Christ, you can't understand it. You cannot understand the Old Testament unless you know Jesus. Have you ever seen those decoders? It's like a piece of paper and it's all red, like static, like red static. You can't see anything. And then you get the red lens and you hold it over it, like in the game Outburst. And all of a sudden you can see all the letters. The letters were there the whole time. And if you get used to it, you can actually see them through the red. That's what Jesus does to the Old Testament. You see, the disciples had read it. They knew everything in the Old Testament, but they couldn't see Jesus. Jesus gives them the decoder ring, the decoder lens, so they could then see Jesus in the text where he'd always been. Can you see Jesus in the Old Testament? Or is it just a bunch of rules and laws and weird stories? That'll make you into an unhappy Christian. Because all you'll be trying to do is keep the rules, figure out the stories, try to be good like those people, try to be a Daniel, try to be an Abraham, try to be like Moses. You're not following Moses. You're following Jesus. That's what it means to look to the Bible for Jesus. Jesus shows us that to be a follower of him means to read and follow Scripture. You see how he doesn't make a distinction? He says, it was all there, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures, and says, thus it is written. You can't follow Christ if you don't follow the Word. How else do you know Christ? Not just read the Bible, see Jesus in the Bible. Uh, an African-American theologian, Stephanie Crowder, says, people react differently even to the same event. Our lives are different, aren't they? Especially from them. That's a long time ago. The critical common element is that for the believer, clarity comes when Jesus speaks or expresses himself. 
in trying to deal with difficult experiences, the Word of God is the expression that brings peace and understanding. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you want to follow me? Go to the Scriptures. Everyone's going to be different. Your lives are different, your places are different, your experiences are different, but the Bible is always the same. Because as followers, we're not followers of our experiences, we're followers of Jesus, which means a common point. What's the common point? Jesus in the Scripture. Why didn't the disciples get this? Why were they so messed up? They'd followed Jesus. They'd walked with him. He taught them. What was the problem? Why did they, when they read scriptures, they didn't see any of this? Why were they surprised when Jesus shows up? They read the scriptures, but they didn't comprehend the scriptures. Now, if they couldn't comprehend them, what makes us think we can comprehend them? If his own disciples who walked with him for three years, saw him die, saw him risen, still couldn't comprehend it, why would we? The same thing that happened to them needs to happen to us. What does it say? And he opened their understanding. A supernatural event has to happen inside of you where you read the same words that you read before, but you understand them now. The same spirit that connects you to Jesus connects you to the Scripture. The Holy Spirit illuminates the Bible. Why is the Bible even true? except that it was given by the Spirit. And how do we connect with a document that was written 2,000 years ago? God has to connect us. The Spirit illuminates it. The Spirit confirms it. Has anyone ever asked you, how do you know the Bible's true? It's a big question, isn't it? If Jesus says, everything in the Bible is about me, you need to follow it, then we need to say, well, how do we know it's true? How do we know that this guy, Luke, didn't just make this story up? Or maybe he made up a story or he told the true story, but a hundred years later somebody else rewrote it or told it to somebody else and they told it to somebody else and a thousand years later it's a different story. How do we know that this is the story we're supposed to follow? The same way we know Jesus is real. The Holy Spirit connects us. Second London Confession. The formal example, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Scriptures. Okay. Delivered by the Spirit. You see, that's the key part because there's a lot of old stories about things to do. Which ones are true? The ones that the Spirit tells you are true. You're like, ah, that's too vague for me. That's God speaking to you. God is saying to you, the Bible is true. And you say, that's not good enough? What do you want? Another man to tell you it's true? A philosopher to tell you it's true? If God can't speak to you and tell you it's true, then you can't know that anything's true. So when the world says, how do you know the Bible's true? You say, because Jesus opened my eyes to tell me. And that's why we rest on the scriptures. If you reject the word, you reject Christ. You can't follow Christ and not believe the Bible. See, Jesus says, you want to follow me? Look in the Bible. So we say, 
Disciple of Christ, follower of Scripture. How do we know Scripture is true? Because it's the Word of God, and we believe God. God who wrote a Bible can confirm it in our hearts. Are we disciples of Jesus? Are we a disciple of reason? Are we disciples of Jesus? Are we a disciple of science? Disciple of Jesus or disciple of experience? Disciple of Jesus or disciple of sight? You've got to choose. Either follow what the Bible says, trust Christ in Scripture, or trust the world. That's it. There's no other option. The only Jesus we have is the Jesus of Scripture. Get rid of the Bible, you've got nothing. Keep the Bible, you've got Jesus. And the Holy Spirit confirms that in our hearts, and that's enough. You don't need to be a professor. You don't need to be a scientist. You don't need to be smart. You just need to believe God. That's it. That's what disciples of Jesus do. They know Christ, and they believe the Scriptures. But that's not all a Christian does. A disciple of Christ does not just know Christ and follow the Scriptures. They do what Jesus says. Right? Disciple, follower. Jesus says to his disciples, go get food. They don't go take a nap. They go get food. Why? Because they're disciples. So we're disciples. So look what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, I'm real. The Bible's true. It talks about me. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose again. We preach that you want your sins forgiven. Trust Christ. That's the gospel message should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Jesus gives a mission to his disciples. And you can tell who his disciples are by who keeps the mission. The gospel proclamation. Jesus says to his disciples, take this message and share it. There's your mission. Who's a disciple of Jesus? Those who follow Jesus. Those who take the message and want to share it with people. The gospel of reconciliation. You see, when Jesus goes back to the law, to Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, he goes through the whole Bible, what story is he telling about himself? What's the story of the Bible that Jesus is saying it's all about me? God created man so that God could be with man. Garden of Eden, a temple where God could meet with his people. And he did, till they sinned. And they couldn't meet together anymore. And God says, that's okay, because I've got a plan ready. And the day Adam and Eve sin, God says, I've got a plan. I'm going to raise up someone of your descendants who's going to crush this serpent. Jesus was ready. He was ready with a plan for when man failed. And throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, here's what that looks like. I'll protect your descendants so that Jesus can be born. I'll show you what it looks like to bring you back together the temple, the sacrifices, the law. It was all about reconciliation. And how do you reconcile God and man? Through Christ. That's the story of the Bible, a story of reconciliation. So when he says that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Adam was all nations, right? When he was in the garden, he was everybody. There was no, everyone's a descendant of Adam. So when Adam was cut off from God, 
Everyone was cut off from God. So if God's going to fix the problem, he's got to fix it for everybody, not just the Jews, not just one group of people. This is important in our day and age to figure out who's a disciple of Jesus. One week ago, a man walked into a synagogue and killed someone, which is terrible and evil. He's a white supremacist. It's evil. But what's worse is that he wrote a manifesto, and in that manifesto he said, God has prepared to save his people, and that only those who trust Christ alone and not in their works will be saved. Isn't that what we believe? He was a member of a Presbyterian church, the same denomination where I went to seminary. I know professors who spoke at his church. His dad was an elder in that church. What's going on here? Do disciples of Christ murder people? But he says he believes that Jesus was real and that the gospel is true. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Does it mean simply to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? No, it does not. A disciple of Christ believes Jesus, believes the Bible, and takes the gospel to all nations. And the minute someone walks in and kills a group of people, you realize whatever they said, they're not a disciple of Christ. They're not on the mission of Christ. They're a disciple of Satan. And they're on the mission of Satan. Their actions say, I want to further the division that Satan caused. Jesus says, I've come to bring everybody back together through faith in me. The minute you see someone spouting those words but causing division, you say, nope, different mission, different disciple. Disciples of Christ love all nations, preach to all nations, work to unite all nations in Christ, and disciples and followers of Satan do the opposite. So whatever this guy said he believed about Jesus, what he actually believed is what he did. This is important because we live in a day and age where it's hard to tell the difference. And we as Christians are often taught as long as you believe the right things, that's all you need. But now it's become clear it's not all you need, at least to identify a disciple. So we realize disciples of Christ follow Christ. They preach the gospel in exactly the way that Jesus commanded it to be preached. In his name, to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So the concept of an anti-Semitic Christian is to say Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. So we reject that. And we call it for what it is, which is sin. Satanic, demonic. And what we need to do is we need to recognize that there are progressions of sin, and that a shooting like that is sort of an extreme expression of sin. But it didn't start there. It came from somewhere else. It grew into that evil, and it came from rejecting the unifying call of Jesus in the gospel. So everyone denounces the shooting, but are we denouncing the things that leads to it, the divisions among people? That's what Christians are called to do, is unite people, not divide them. To be a disciple of Christ is to point people to Christ. Make disciples of Christ, who said to Eve, your descendant will crush Satan, who said to Abraham, I will bless all nations, 
through your seed, who said to Moses, you will be a witness to all nations, who said in Acts, all nations were there to be preached, who said in Ephesians that the dividing line between Jew and Gentiles was broken down, who says in Revelation chapter 7 that every tribe, tongue, nation, worship the Lamb together. That's Christianity. And to be a disciple of Christ is to work to that end on earth. It'll never be realized here, but we work towards it. Are we going to follow Christ or are we going to follow the world? Now, remember what happens when you follow Christ. You end up like Christ. People look out for their own interests. And Jesus looks out for others' interests. And when we start doing that, the people whose interests we go against by unifying will resist us. Expect to be called bad names when you work for unity in the gospel. Because if everyone's equal, no one's better. And the people who've always been better don't like that. They want to be privileged. They want to be better. So when we go take the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends, to the world, there's always going to be people who have to humble themselves and follow Christ, which means they'll have to give up things. And they're going to resist that. But that's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. You give up yours and take Christ. How do you do this? How do you give up yours when you like it? How do you reach out to people you don't like, who are different than you? Where's this power come from? It doesn't come from us. The history of mankind has shown us that man does not have the ability to unite. So Jesus says, Behold, I send the promise of the Father upon you. Not the promise of mankind, the promise of the Father. Tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. You want to change this world? You need something outside of this world to come into this world and give you the ability to do it. That's Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, that is the promise given to us to do what is impossible, unite people. You know it's impossible to unite people. The United Nations tried it. America tried it. No one's done it. It's impossible. God says, yes, for you to do it's impossible. So we trust the Spirit. The promise is that the power of God will come into this earth and do what is humanly impossible, which is bring people together in Christ. Look at verse 37. They were terrified and frightened. They should have been. They're people. They're humans. But look at the end of the passage. He led them out, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. What happened? Why were they terrified, and why were they hiding in the first place? Because they were afraid of what was going to happen to them. At the end of the passage, they're publicly saying, we love Jesus who you killed. They're not hiding it. They're saying, I want everyone to know that the guy you murdered, we're with him. And we want you to know that we're with him. And we're right here where you can find us. Where'd that boldness come from? They had to have a transformation that can't be explained by human experience. A transformation that only comes from God. They were hiding, they were afraid, and now they're joyful. 
They were hiding, now they're public worship. What happened? In the beginning of the passage, they were looking out for themselves. Then they meet Jesus. Then they're looking out for him. You have to care more about what Jesus thinks about you than what everybody else thinks about you. You have to care more about what Jesus thinks about you than what you want, what your work co-workers think, what your family thinks. You have to care more about a person you can't see than the people you can see. How? Just like they did. Meet Jesus personally, find Christ in the scriptures, and follow Christ's command to spread the gospel. If you do these things, the Holy Spirit will change you. In other words, we live by faith, not by sight. And the promise of the Father is that if you follow Jesus, Jesus will take care of you. He will take your fear away. He'll give you joy. He'll take your disunity away, and he'll give you unity. He'll take your sin away, and he'll give you righteousness. So follow Jesus. Let's pray.